Hello and welcome to Tech Talk from Parent Zone, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life for parents, teachers, professionals and policymakers with me, Vicky Shopwalt and Geraldine Bedell. Geraldine, are you fully recovered yet from our conference? No, I can't really say I am. I'm still rather tired. But I hope you're basking in a sense of well-being and success because I think it was very good. Well, I hope we're all basking in that, actually, because I agree it was really good and great to do one that was properly blended and is still available for people to watch back. That was a new one for us, wasn't it? That was, yeah, and um, a bit of an experiment, but I think it all worked pretty well, really. So um, should we talk through it a bit, um, recap what we discussed and some of the point, really interesting points that were made? Um, and I wanted to ask you, first of all, how you set about compiling your opening remarks, because you set a very nice tone for it, I thought. And I just wondered what you, what your starting point was, what you wanted to get across when you sat down to put those together. Well, thank you for that. And I did have help, as you know, because you helped me unravel some of the sections where I was starting to get myself in a in a twist. Yeah, I came in at quite a late stage. <laughs> I think my I think there are two things really that that are front of mind for me. And I think for all of us as parents, I actually are very, very conscious of how difficult life is for families at the moment. And poverty and the financial uncertainty that families are living through is kind of debilitating and it's really really problematic and I do worry in our space that all too often technology is pointed to as the thing that is is really causing a lot of these problems and and of course it's causing a lot of them but I think it's so important that we put everything we do in the digital world in the context of the world that families are actually living in which is a really difficult one at the moment. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we can easily lose sight of the fact that families under are under enormous stress. And we know that vulnerabilities offline tend to get exacerbated online. So it might look like the internet's causing these problems, but actually the problems have kind of deeper roots and wider implications. And I thought you brought that out very well. And actually that played into some of the things that we talked about later because uh, we we had Paul Finnis talking about digital poverty, but we also had Sam Sharps talking about how the future was online and that policymaking had to had to go across all kinds of areas. And that's effectively what you were saying at the beginning, that it's kind of an integrated thing and we can't think about technology in isolation. Absolutely. And I think... Sometimes, and I, we've certainly had this, haven't we, on, the, on our podcast where people have said this needs to happen or this is what's going to happen when the online safety bill comes in. And the reality, of course, is that it's an incredibly complex bill and there are parts of it, um, like what's going to happen with encrypted platforms, um, that still haven't been worked out yet. I mean, I'm certainly no clearer than I was when the first white paper was was published. So... I think I was also keen to draw out some of that complexity, which is sometimes, I feel, oversimplified when people are talking about um, the opportunity we have with regulation. 
Yeah, that's right too, I think. And obviously people want to push regulation and they want to make the best case for it. And I can see why it gets talked up because I think we're all agreed. I think the whole conference was agreed really, even though there was a kind of counterbalancing strand to the conference that was about individuals and media literacy and that kind of thing. I think everybody was agreed that we do need regulation. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be unintended consequences or that things aren't going to be more complicated than they might at first appear. And I thought that came across very well. Again, um, even though that, that, you know, that stuff about um, age gating the internet and what's going to happen with end-to-end -end encryption is all still very dense and difficult to untangle. It really is. And I think I remember when we were putting together our response in the early days of the online safety bill, we were putting together our response to the first consultation and saying, actually, what we really need is a whole society conversation about some of these issues. Um, and of course, those things are almost impossible to facilitate, although we do our best, don't we, on TechShock. But um, we said that five years ago and and I think we're kind of still saying it that regulation will do a bit but we need all of society to be involved in what this new world might look like. Yes and I guess that is what Sam Sharps was saying in a way he said that policy tends to be siloed and actually that we need to think of tech across all forms of policy and if a policy hasn't got tech in it it's not really a valid policy because it's not taking account of the future and so we do need to have a much more kind of holistic conversation about this but it's very difficult to do that it's very difficult it's such an enormous subject and so complicated that um, it's it's quite difficult to get there. But we did make a good fist of it, I think, at the conference. We did um, we did cover quite a lot of areas, and I think there were kind of there was a big underlying theme of media literacy and regulation and how they play into one another and that went across various subjects that we talked about so maybe we should talk about a bit about Faith Rogo who was our keynote speaker at the in the morning and who talked about media literacy she's been on the podcast before and she was great I thought I thought she was absolutely fantastic and she said Something that's really stayed with me, which is that uh, when books were invented, became freely available, we didn't say these could be dangerous, let's lock them in libraries and keep them for the elite. We said, how do we figure out how to teach everybody to read? And, you know, I think I think it's it, it sounds like a simple point to make, but it's quite a powerful one, isn't it? Her, her concept of literacy shifting for the second time in history and of having to grasp this challenge of making sure that people are literate in the digital world. Yes, that's right. So the first time was Gutenberg and the printing press. And as she said, we moved at that point from reading being something from for the elite to something for everyone. And now we're going through a similar sort of paradigm shift where it's not enough anymore just to be able to decode print, to be able to read. We need to be able to decode all kinds of other things as well. Images much more than we ever have and dashboards and charts and data. 
And uh, so we, we need a whole set of skills that we haven't been used to teaching children. And I really liked her point that um, media literacy up to this point, or at least the internet, has been seen in terms of children as a public health issue. We've, And she talked a bit about this when she was on Tech Shock, that we've taken a kind of safety first approach to it. And we've said, oh, no, don't go there. Um, but you can't keep children away from screens and then expect them to be literate. Which absolutely aligns with what we talk about an awful lot, which is resilience. You cannot develop digital resilience if you're not online and learning how to flourish in that environment. And I I thought there were real echoes when she was talking about that in the context of literacy, media literacy, that um, you need people to learn how to be literate in the environment that they're in. Something she said that I absolutely loved um, was that this doesn't always have to be hugely complicated, that you can teach people habits that just become second nature. And she gave an example, actually not at the conference, but at the dinner the night before, um, when she said, we all know if you look at a packet of cereal and it's it's kind of brown on the, on the packet, you know what flavour cereal you're going to be getting. And you can learn those very simple habits that become second nature. You're not thinking about it anymore. You just know because you're literate in the environment that you're in. And I, you know, I just love that simple example. And she said, if you if you see brown pasta, you don't think that's chocolate. You think that's whole wheat. And so these things are sort of simple, but a bit complicated at the same time. And she said, we need to develop develop habits of inquiry and we need to think about it in the broadest terms. And as we know, she believes that you can start teaching children about these things from a really young age, preschool. And we tend to think about media literacy only in one respect, which is, you know, do children have sufficient skills to kind of access the digital world? But as she says, that's only one of 10 different competencies that we actually need to be living our fullest lives online. And we can, as adults, approach that either from a sort of point position of fear or we can approach it with imagination and optimism. And children are much more likely to learn if we approach with optimism and hope. And she gave a she gave also a quite good example of um, children crossing the street. We we often talk about internet safety, and this is a kind of old trope. You know, you have to teach children to cross the street. You also have to teach them to be safe online. Um, but actually, often when we're teaching them about being online, we're giving them the message that adults don't really want them to be there in the first place mm. and that they're not likely to learn from us as long as we're doing that. Mm. And I think that that is very prevalent in the conversations we're having at the moment. Is this in like, online world just too dangerous for children? Should we just keep them away from it? And, you know, I understand that feeling and I you know we are as mindful of all of the issues online as as any organization could be I would say but in the end it's got to be imagination not fear that drives how we talk to children about this I think if we really want them to flourish and I think that's what Julian McDougall was talking about as well don't you and he said he quoted Tony Blair you can't organize the future with a playbook from the past I think he was talking about that radical alternative way of looking at what could be done yeah that's right because Megan in that panel Megan from Parent Zone raised the question of whether 
um, regulation or education are the answer and obviously the answer is both and then Faith I think gave an example of um, build she went back to her example of children crossing the road and she said okay we can teach them to cross the road but that's no good if we're building unsafe roads so it's not an either or it's an and. Which is the other thing that Julie McDougall was talking about wasn't it that it has to be regulation and education uh, that they both have a role to play but I think underpinning both of those things have to be a positive attitude and and I think the public debate does matter I, I worry sometimes that we're we're heading down a path of negativity that isn't going to take us to the right place am I mixing my metaphors again Geraldine? <laughs> I don't think so, no. no. I completely understand what you're saying at any rate. And I thought it was quite interesting to have um, an, a perspective from the UK, because obviously Faith's American, and Julian McDougall was asked whether he thought that we were in the right place in the UK as far as media literacy was concerned, and he said absolutely not. We're not thinking about it in the way that Faith was talking about as a kind of big big thing which you start early and which is offline and online and uh, absorbing and imaginative we're thinking about it in very quite reductive terms still one thing that really struck me from something that julian said on the panel was when he was talking about media studies um and the fact that we do have these uh, this resource of teachers who've been teaching media studies for years and i'm ashamed to say that i I'm guilty of putting media studies in that bucket of subjects that were kind of, well, I remember not paying a lot of attention when I was at school, let's put it that way. It wasn't, it wasn't a serious subject um, when I was at school. And that was just kind of a wake-up call for me, that the times have changed so much and it is an absolutely fundamental subject now. It's no longer the kind of joke subject that you do on a Friday afternoon it is absolutely fundamental to a child's education fundamental yeah and and deadly serious and it's possible that you know those subjects that aren't given much prominence and that aren't taken seriously at the top um, in other words aren't examined aren't part of the national curriculum do tend to become kind of joke subjects I mean, that sort of trickles down into the way that they're taught, the way that children respond to them and so on. And I completely agree with you. It's Media literacy is absolutely fascinating and really central to the way that we're going to have to live our lives. Shall we move on to, to, yeah. um, to the next kind of section that we talked about, financial harms? Yeah, so David Zendel gave a great presentation um, David Zendel also um, has been on Tech Shock, and he talked, as he's talked before, about games becoming a sales platform, having gone from being things that you bought and plugged into your machine and played, and that was kind of that. Um, and he said that the, the, the monetization inside games now is conservatively thought to be around $100 billion dollars a year which is huge it's absolutely shocking isn't it um and as you say we've parents have done work with david sandal for a long time now he's when we were doing work on skin gambling he was one of the experts he is one of the world's leading experts on this subject and the thing that i was 
shocked by and I you know you kind of get to that point when you don't think you're going to be shocked anymore don't you but I was so shocked when he put up that slide that showed the most popular games in the app store and the age rating for uh, several of them was three plus and you looked at them and you could see why parents would download them for their children because they were things like piano games or learn to play the guitar all those kind of wholesome uh, activities that you know parents want their kids to be doing and yet those are the self-same games that have these financial techniques built into them that are just designed to get children spending and I just thought that was grim three plus that cannot be right can it no that can't be right and he went through the kind of dynamics that are used in games to coerce spending he called it I think the wheel of monetization and you you could see that for children, it was sort of impossible to escape this pull to spend money all the time. So I thought that was really interesting. And then he went on, of course, to talk about casino streams and uh, gambling online, which, you know, because you can't cash out, it's considered not gambling by the gambling authorities in this country. And it's just a nonsense. You know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you would think it probably is a duck and they couldn't be more like gambling. No, I mean, anybody looking at them would recognise that they were indeed ducks. And I must admit, I just find myself so profoundly frustrated that policymakers aren't listening to this message. We've had the review of the Gambling Act. In fact, I don't know if you remember, I think it might have been two seasons ago when we had Henrietta Bowden-Jones on and she was saying, the review is really important. Let's hope that they make some good decisions. Actually, we need a whole new act, um, but at least they're reviewing it and we'll make some progress. And in practice, what's happened is completely nothing. We are, you know, self-regulation. And I just find that so depressing. So I thought David's kind of call to action for us all, which was to keep making a noise, keep raising this issue, keep talking about it, and try and make change um, from kind of bottom up was was a really important one. I agree, and we've made no progress. And as the finance panel pointed out, that's a real problem because we're moving towards a world in which this is becoming the business model for much of the internet. You know, the business model used to be advertising. Now it's other forms of monetization increasingly. And with the metaverse, that will become even more the case. So I think it was Jono, Jonathan Bagley from the PSHE Association who said that children's playgrounds have become rapaciously commercial. And that feels like a very depressing situation. I think it's shocking. I really do. And imagine a playground that had endless, you know, every time you went on a slide, you had to pay money for it. Or, you know, they were flogging sugary drinks in machines around every swing. You know, we just wouldn't put up with it because it would be so visible and so appalling. There's just no way that parents would put up with that. But because the games environment is hidden, very often and these techniques are built in and invisible and insidious uh, there isn't the backlash against the um, the industry that you would get if it was an offline environment I don't think and I just think we need to keep being angry and making a noise about it Geraldine. 
That's such a good point. I think it is hidden. Parents feel uneasy about what their children are doing. They don't quite always know what's making them uneasy. But they're right to feel uneasy about this because it is absolutely appalling and we wouldn't stand for it in the offline world. And then the other thing that that panel went went on to talk about was uh, the other sorts of financial harms that are going on online through scamming and Tracy Carpenter from SciFast talked about how how common it was for children to be coerced or persuaded into lending their bank details to a friend and then they find out that they're caught up in money laundering and this sounds rather kind of alarmist and um, like uh, sort of over dramatic but it's really remarkably common and there are children who are on the fraud database at the age of 14. I find that absolutely you know astonishing that and and often you know once it's explained to you you kind of go yes I can I can understand how teenagers get caught up in that you know will you lend me your bank account can I borrow your bank card and will you give me your pin number because children are um, willing to trust people aren't they particularly if it's a friend and somebody they want to be friends with so you can see how a child could get caught up in that. And then being on that fraud database, having lifelong implications. You know, when you, when you go to get a job and they do a credit check, um, she described the case of a, I think it was a young girl she was talking about who got involved in this activity quite young. And then when she went to get her first job, she, she was um, pushed back because she was on the fraud database. Yeah, and it's not going to get any easier, presumably, to fight back against this stuff because... Because of the cost of living crisis, children are going to be under more financial pressure. Their families are going to be under more financial pressure. If they're offered ways to get rich quick or do something that's a bit lucrative, they're going to find it very hard to say no. And, you know, we, we know children's judgment isn't um, as sophisticated or as um, cool as adults. I mean, it's very difficult, I think. It's very difficult. It's a particularly hard time to be trying to stop this kind of activity and with levels of understanding so low I mean I have to say my knowledge of money laundering is um it's developing fast but it was pretty thin uh, up until we had this conference and you know if, if we don't know about it and we're supposed to be specialists in this area what hope for a parent or a young person so we've got to do more to raise the profile of that of that issue. And I hope we're going to be, I know finance is something we're going to be looking at in in the year ahead. After lunch, we had Ellie Hansen, who is also someone who's been on Tech Shop before. And she was really impressive, I think, talking about an incredibly difficult subject. Such a difficult subject. And, you know, I admire the way she talks about it because it is not an easy one. She talked about um, people being shut up or shut down when they try to talk about porn. And we've definitely experienced that. I've been told that I've, you know, I'm being mumsy and narrow minded whenever I whenever I've talked about porn. So her presentation, I thought, was really powerful um, because she was making the point that porn is all about money. It's an industry and it's manipulating personhood in order to encourage a certain type of sexuality um and and that's not a type of sexuality that's supporting positive relationships or good sexual relationships it's a kind of sexuality that makes money for the porn industry yeah yeah and she made the point that 
I, I guess, and she made also on tax shock that it's sort of an extreme form of surveillance capitalism where the industry is collecting data points at every interaction and then feeding back more and more extreme content and trying to exploit people's vulnerabilities or their sexual preferences or proclivities in order to deliver them more and more extreme content, which eventually some people will pay for. And that's what's going on. And as a result, the it's it's very individualistic. It's all about um, following your arousal. And there's a sense that that people are sort of depersonalized, as you say, and that sex is not about other people. It's only about yourself. And that has real world implications of a really quite horrific kind. That was dark, but fascinating it was dark yeah exactly those two things i tell you what i really liked when she showed a um a chart and all of this is available on on playback so i would encourage our listeners to to have a watch but she showed a chart and it answered one of the questions that i've been asked and i've asked myself quite a lot so much porn is free I mean, Twitter is awash with porn. Pornhub, you just, you know, there are no age verifications to stop you going on there. It's all there for free. So how is the porn industry making money? And she had that fabulous graph that showed if you have a large enough circle of people consuming the free content, all you have to do is to nudge a few of them into the middle and get them to pay for content, and you're going to make lots of money. And the stuff that people pay for is the more extreme uh, the more the dark and the more violent, the unpleasant, the niche, call it what you will. It's it's that stuff. And it's a smaller number of much smaller people, number of people that actually pay for it. But because so many people are at the outer edges, um, that's enough to drive people to those inner paid for, very profitable um, content. Yes. And in the process of getting people into the middle, lots of people on the outer rings are still being exposed to dehumanizing content um, and to violent misogyny very often which brings us very neatly to our next speaker neatly (laughs) done there Geraldine (laughs) thank you (laughs) who was Callum Hood and he talked about incels as he did a few weeks ago on TechShock and that was really really interesting it was really interesting. And actually, I think that was the moment in the day when we had a few people gasping because it is almost too awful to to believe. I mean, it is so misogynistic, exactly as he described on the podcast. And we should we should encourage people to go back and, and listen to that that episode, shouldn't we? Because he he did such a great job of, of describing that um, process and touched on those forums that sit around the incel forums, the suicide forums, the unemployment forums, the body image forums that are all driving traffic to this horrible community. Yes. I think the gasp came when he was talking about the self-hatred of the incels and the fact that they're often led to incel forums from forums about body image and looks and that one of these looks forums encourages them to smash their faces so that they break their bones, so that they remodel their faces. Um, Notionally, it sounds completely bizarre, but um, I have, you know, I'm sure he's right, Um, but horrible. And then we went on to a panel with Voicebox, which brought um, some of 
some of what Callum and Ellie had been talking about together with um, Natalie, the director of Voicebox, Natalie Foose, who, um, and we talked about how difficult parents find these subjects to talk to their children about. Yeah, and I have to say shout out to her representing young people on a panel dealing with two such difficult yeah. subjects. It was really difficult. Um, it was difficult. And you chaired that panel and, and did it brilliantly, I thought, because you gave her the space to talk about that young person's perspective. And the thing that I took away from that was really par- young people just want honesty. They want the truth. And uh, she described having an abstinence education when it came to sex in America, which I think we're a wee bit better than that in the UK. Uh, not always brilliant, though. Um, and all, and she was saying young people just need honesty, they need the truth. I found that extraordinary, listening to her talking about that, and horrific to be brought up in those circumstances where you're told you'll die if you have sex before marriage and your husband will know and he'll never forgive you. Um, I mean, completely antiquated ideas. And I thought that was interesting because we do find it difficult to talk about sex and um and i thought that ellie hansen did a brilliant job of talking in a kind of sex positive way about about pornography because um you know as as natalie said sometimes when when we talk about um we talk about these issues and we're um, we question whether it's a good idea that young women stream themselves on OnlyFans for money, um, which is something that Natalie and the Voicebox team have written a report about. Um, you know, the, the counter to that is, well, it's just anti-sex. You're being anti-sex. You're not being sex positive. But actually, Ellie, I think, swung that around and, and said, you know, actually... It is sex positive to be anti-porn because porn is really anti-sex. I mean, it's it's antithetical to kind of good forms of sex. So I thought that all came together quite nicely there. Yeah, so did I. And I also thought that, that Callum did a good job of touching on the responsibility between tech and, and legislation and individuals. And obviously, as ever, as we always say, that the, the there's responsibility in, in all parts of that ecosystem. But he was making the point that actually some of the incel forums are very easy to find. They're not, they're, they're not even hidden in plain sight. They're top of search results in some instances. So I thought he did a good job as well of um, making sure that we landed that point about there is stuff that could be done to deal with some of this, like age verification on porn, uh, which was nearly here, and then it disappeared. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because I think it showed that you need different levels of attack for different kinds of activity online. So I think there's no doubt that the whole room would have been in favour of age-gating children out of porn completely. But that doesn't mean you have to age-gate them out of everything completely. And, you know, you might have to deal with hate speech in a slightly different way where you don't allow it to become amplified. You know, you don't stop people saying hateful things, but you don't allow it to become to take over and, and, and become dominant. So I thought that was all really interesting. Then we moved on to Sam Sharps from the Tony Blair Institute, whose brief was to cheer us up a bit and make us think a bit more positively about the future. And I think he did a good job. 
he landed that point that you know tech is here and it's transformative and it has to it it has the potential to transform policy and public services and and all policy ought to be tech policy and i also felt that um that what he did surface was the scale of the mindset change that we needed that was a very clunky sentence but i think you know what i mean it's it's not tweaking around the edges that's needed it's a really profound shift it's got to go across everything and although he was cheering us up, he did say, and I found this quite dispiriting, he's, he pointed out that we 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 were still reeling from the effects of deindustrialization. We've only just started to come to terms with what that's meant to the country and the economy and everything. And now, because of AI and because of um, technology, we face deservicification and, you know, services are basically what the British economy is built on. And so that's going to mean tremendous economic upheaval. And, you know, we, our, our strapline is for their future. And we have to think about what the future is going to look like for our children. And it is going to be enormously different. And they are going to have to be tech literate and media literate. And they are going to have to embrace the opportunities of tech in a way that I think we don't always recognise. We pay lip service to it, but I don't think we recognise how enormous that change is. And I suppose that is where we started to draw the connections between media literacy and education and how important it was that we were preparing young people with the skills they need for that future that Sam was describing. Actually, not even future, it's kind of here, isn't it? Already we are in the middle of deservicification. That's a very hard word to say. <laughs> very hard word, almost <laughs> impossible. Um, so we had a moment, we had a brief moment of being cheered up before we uh, then talked about um, digital poverty, which, you know, there is no way of, of landing that without feeling mildly depressed, is there? No, there isn't. Paul Vince was great. And he talked about how digital poverty we tend to think of as access to devices and then access to connectivity. But actually, it's bigger than that, because it does also embrace a kind of media literacy. But, um, you know, he, he had some really sobering figures. He said that 150,000 children a year leave school functionally illiterate. And this was a point that I raised with um, with Faith when she came on the podcast. Um, and I said, you know, we have very persistent levels of illiteracy in this country and can you be you know how can you sort of see media literacy as the solution when we're so bad at literacy and of course media literacy is something different and it's not just about words it's about pictures and charts and all the other things that are much more than that um the the other things that we've talked about but um i do think it's that is quite sobering and needs to be taken into account when we think about digital poverty absolutely and it's very it is so much part of digital poverty alongside the kind of basic stuff you know the the, the kind of factual number stuff like 21 percent of internet users only having a smartphone and 8 million uk households struggling to pay their broadband bills i mean there's that kind of infrastructure problem as well as the skills problem and put those two things together and um the picture looked pretty bleak didn't it that that paul described but actually encouraging to see a wide range of organisations starting to come together through the Digital Poverty Alliance to try to move the dial, to use a horrible expression. 
Yes, admirable, and lots of different kinds of organisations as well, including including sort of commercial businesses, which is very encouraging. But you, you know, you just think about you go back to your starting point in your opening remarks and how much pressure there is on families financially at the moment, and that none of that is going to get much easier. And then we came to your lovely. Really lovely fireside chat with Jim Knight, which I thought was fascinating because we had had the online safety bill running as a kind of undercurrent throughout the day. Um, It had sort of been there. And then you and Jim addressed it directly at the end of the day. And I found that really, really interesting and, and very helpful in bringing everything together. One of the things I found helpful was to have um, Jim, obviously an expert in the House of Lords on the scrutiny committee uh, for the online safety bill. I just found it so helpful having having him explain the process that we have this May deadline um, for the bill going through in this in this because of the King's speech because of the King's speech. Uh, That's assuming we don't have a general election, of course, and lots of other variables. But I think his message was. Whatever happens, there is now such consensus that, that we need regulation. And with Damien Collins still at the DCMS, of course, he chaired the scrutiny committee. Um, Jim's feeling was that we will get regulation one way or another, and hopefully we'll get it through in this in this parliament. I was interested to know whether he thought that the current upheavals, if one can use such a mild word for what's going on in the government at the moment, had um, weakened the Tory libertarian right, who, as we know, was sort of pushing back on the lawful but awful, legal but harmful side of the bill um, on grounds of free speech, although personally I think that's a kind of misreading of what's going on with the bill. Whether that had weakened them and would therefore give the bill extra impetus to get through without too many changes. And I don't think he he kind of was able to answer that one way or the other, really. But I, I think it's interesting to think about because it could it could be a good thing for the bill. But it could also be that the chaos in the Conservative Party, and I think perhaps this is more likely, will just hold it up until it's almost too late. Or perhaps it is too late. That's my worry. I mean, we have just unprecedented chaos. I can't ever remember chaos like this, can you? No. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't the, think anybody the, can. <laughs> I think fighting in the lobbies as they were going through to vote, uh, you know, it, it's just a mess, isn't it? So my, my worry is that um, the online safety bill will get caught up in that mess and we'll run out of time. But I, th- I took away from Jim that even if that happens, uh, there is a way for the bill to come back and the commitment to do something is there so hopefully it will but he said something else I found really really interesting and you know it's one of our one of our topics of concern and that's the duty of care and he confirmed what what we've already talked about which is that the duty of care as originally described to us um, is not what we what we've now got in the bill and that's because the government said the government lawyers said that it just wouldn't stand up in court um, so it is, I mean, I think he agreed that the duty of care is a step forward, but it's not the robust duty of care that we would have liked to have seen. Yes, that's right. And the government says that 
their lawyers said it wouldn't stand up in court. And he said that Will Perrin and Lorna Woods, who, of course, drew up the original plans for the bill with the duty of care included, dispute that. So I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. We don't know what the truth of that is. Um, but certainly it, the, the bill is now not about a duty of care. It's about a rather sort of baroque um, relationship with Ofcom, where Ofcom sets, you know, looks at terms and conditions and and so on. So um, it has made it more complex in some ways. But I thought his his experience on the Joint Scrutiny Committee was really, really interesting. And you asked him whether there had been any witnesses that he'd particularly liked or that had changed his mind. And he talked quite movingly, really, about Rio Ferdinand. And um, obviously, that was very powerful testimony, which suggests that, you know, that lawful but awful stuff was still really important because Rio Ferdinand described having to explain to his kids why it was offensive that people put bananas on his Twitter timeline. Mm. And he also made that powerful point about uh, when content, you know, if there's a stream of football um, on YouTube, then it's taken down very, very quickly because of copyright law. Um, so why is it not as easy to respond quickly when there's hateful content online? And I, I thought it was a really powerful point. I was, I was less, I was less convinced, if I'm truthful, about the media literacy. Should it be on the bill? Should it not be on the bill? I, my reading was that uh, absolute commitment there. I think, I think Jim really demonstrated, I mean, he was, it used to be the Secretary of State for Education, so of course he cares about education, demonstrated how important it was. But my reading was that they kind of still not quite sure how to achieve it. And that's why it was off the bill, was my yeah. reading between the lines. It's difficult to know. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure some people know um, why media literacy has come off the face of the bill. But certainly it feels like the government is distancing itself from it and is sort of shoving the responsibility for it off onto Ofcom, when probably it should be in the Department for Education. Um, certainly, you know, listening to what Faith had to say and Julian McDougall, there's no way it shouldn't be right at the heart of the Department for Education. So it does feel like, I mean, the government, I'm sure, would say, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just confusing being on the bill. But actually, I think it should be there. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, um, yeah bring back media literacy onto the bill yeah. would be... <laughs> maybe we should pick it Parliament. I know, there's chaos going on in Parliament at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think they'd even notice, would they? <laughs> I don't think they would. We could chain ourselves to the railings, but we'd probably be moved along. Um, shall we finish with the bombshell that we finished with at the conference, which is yeah. what our audience thought to the question about primary school children being on social media? Yeah, so you asked the question. I think actually Jim raised it. He said, should, you know, we should ask ourselves, do we actually want primary school children on social media? Actually, he said children initially, and he was asked for clarification, and it was clarified as primary school children. But at the beginning, he said, do we want children on social media at all? And you turned to the audience and said, well, what do you think? Should children be on social media? And then we d agreed that it should be primary school children that we were voting on. Not a single hand went up. Nobody thought that children should be on social media, as far as I could see. Certainly not from where I was sitting. I couldn't see a single hand. No, I mean, I was looking at the whole audience and, you know, I, 
the the view in the room was that primary school children should not be on social media and I just thought that was really striking and and slightly at odds you know that conversation we started with faith when we were saying actually it's got to start young and it and it's got to be positive and we've got to use our imagination um maybe maybe that's the right call maybe primary school children shouldn't be on social media but if they're not on social media we have to make sure that doesn't mean that we're saying they shouldn't be on the internet because no, absolutely and I think if you'd asked I mean uh, it would have been interesting but actually I think Faith had just gone by that point and um because she had to catch a plane but um it would have been interesting if she'd been there what she whether she would have put her hand up but my feeling was we weren't being asked about the internet if if we had been asked should primary school children be on the internet the the view would have been completely different i think um, yeah. certainly i wouldn't have kept, i wouldn't have put my hand kept my hand down or popped it up whatever i did, whatever i was supposed to do anyway i did the same as everybody else but i i mean i was you know i did think it was really striking and you know there was complete uh, agreement which is a rare thing a very rare like thing yeah a very rare thing and a good day all round, I think. It was a very good day. I thoroughly enjoyed it, even though it has left me exhausted for the rest of the week. And um, I thought, yeah, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And it's great that all that content is still available for everyone to see. Yeah, and I hope people will go and watch it and go back and listen to some of those Tech Shock episodes that uh, our speakers have recorded. It was, it was kind of partly a Tech Shock Live, wasn't it, that, uh, yeah. um, that event? And uh, yeah. Lots of content for people still to go back and listen to. You've been listening to Tech Shock from Parents Own with Vicky Shockbolt and Geraldine Bedell. We hope you'll sign up for regular episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a rating, preferably a good one, so other people can be helped to find us. Mm-hmm.